Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity's true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. You know, I've said many times on this program, ladies and gentlemen, that science doesn't say anything scientists do. And I think we're going to get a good dose of that reality today from my friend Jay Richards, who just co-wrote an amazing new book called The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. And this brand new book is really up to date, and it goes through the entire COVID situation that we've been experiencing here in America. And even it talks about how some of the rest of the world has been dealing with it. And what can we pull out of this? What can we rely on for good information? I don't know about you, but one of the big problems I have, it seems like everything's been politicized. I don't know who to trust for good information. Well, I can know I can trust my friend Jay Richards and his other two authors who've put together this fabulous book. Uh, Those of you who have listened to this podcast know Jay has been on this program many times before. One of my favorite books of all time is one he wrote called Money, Greed, and God. And that book should be read by every Christian at least once a year, especially during an election year, (laughs) because some Christians are tempted to go into socialism, and that does not work. It goes against human nature, and it goes against the principles of the Bible as well. But it's always great to have Jay on. Jay, how are you today? Just fine, Frank. Great to be with you. Yeah, you know, you you write books on so many different topics, Jay. I mean, you wrote Privileged Planets, so you're doing intelligent mm-hmm. design. You've written uh, books on morality with James Robison. Mm-hmm. You've written Money, Greed, and God. You've written a book called Infiltration, dealing with uh, some of the financial dealings of our country. I mean, you're kind mm-hmm. of a renaissance man. You're all over the place with these things, and you write great material. Uh, you're a professor at uh, Catholic University of America. You're also the co-editor of The Stream with James Robinson. By the way, those who, do, who don't know, you need to go to stream.org, stream.org for great Christian news content. Just go there and you'll see more about Jay Richards there. Now, you got two co-authors. I know Doug yeah. Axe. He's been on our program before. I'm not, I don't know if I've met William Briggs, but the, the three authors, Richard Richards, Briggs, and Axe sounds like a law firm. How did you guys come together, and how do your how did your joint expertise enable you to write this book? I mean, honestly, it started with a text from Doug Axe. He and I have known each other for years. Uh, in March, saying, "Jay, I'm really worried about this COVID thing, and I think." people are getting it wrong. Somebody needs to write a book. Give me a call. So we talked. I said, yeah, I agree that someone needs to write that book. I put it in the passive because I didn't (laughs) want to be have anything to do with it. I was too busy. Right. But then I started talking and, you know, talking about it. I thought about it. I know also know William Briggs. I've known him for years. He is a just a, a spectacular statistician. He had been doing what we all do. He was sort of blogging about it and worrying about, you know, reliance on computer modeling and things like that. Um, and I told Doug, I said, okay, I have an idea for how this might be able to come together. If we did it together, the three of us, and if Regnery Publishers would agree to publish it, because they're the only publisher I knew of that could really produce the book quickly and get it out before the next call for lockdowns. Cause that's really what we wanted to do. We thought we can't change the past. 
the lockdowns are going to be a disaster because they're just the the cost benefit analysis wasn't done right. Um, people think that they're making judgments based on the science and they're making judgments based on speculate speculate computer models. And so let's see if it's possible to do. I, I contacted Regnery. They agreed, and by April 1st, we were working on the book, and it was due June the 1st. So um, I'll never do that again, but it made sense <laughs> at the time. <laughs> well, it's it's very well put together. I mean, you guys cover so much ground in this book. Again, the book is called The Price of Panic, How, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. Let's talk uh, the total cost in, in terms of lives, dollars, livelihoods in the response that our government has put into place, Jay? Was it wise or unwise? And we'll get into why as the program unfolds. Yeah, it was It was unwise. I mean, always with any public policy response, with any action, you want the benefits ideally to outweigh the costs. There is always a trade-off to anything we can do. There's no risk-free option for anything that we can do. And so it's, that's why you decide, okay, I'm gonna drive to work today, but if there's an ice storm, um, you know, and you've just gotten a detached retina, uh, you know, you maybe you're not going to, you're gonna calculate things differently. Uh, and in this case, of course, what we wanted to do is have policies that would save lots of lives without costing as many or more lives. And unfortunately, it would no, almost no matter how you slice it, if you talk in terms of dollars, if you talk in terms of jobs, if you talk in terms of actual lives lost or unintentionally killed, um, this is just a disaster. Now, you'd have to say, OK, well, but how many lives are saved? with the lockdowns. Um, it might be that, okay, yeah, some people um, end up dying for other reasons, but maybe we saved net lives. And so the, we spend a bunch of time in the book really trying to analyze, okay, did the lockdowns, what, first of all, how well do they work and do they work at all? We thought, honestly, Frank, that what we would find is that, well, the lockdowns, they helped some. They slowed the curve down of cases and deaths and they saved some lives. It's just that there were much better things that we could have done that would have been less risky. Unfortunately, I hate to say it, but what we found is that there's really no signal in the noise from the government-imposed lockdowns. That if you map out, you know, just kind of draw the curves of cases and deaths and hospitalizations for every one of the U.S. states, um, and then map onto those the individual dates in which state governments either imposed or did impose lockdowns, what you would expect to see if the lockdowns made a difference is about 11, 10 or 11 days out, that's, you know, it takes a while for infections to go down and then tests to be done. You would see a bend in the curve. So in other words, about 10 or 11 days after that date where the government imposed the lockdowns, you should see a bend downward in the curve. So fewer people getting sick, fewer people dying. There's nothing like that. In fact, if you were to look at these curves and we were just to show, show, you, show them to you and you didn't know what the dates were, you would not be able to guess where the government lockdowns happened. And so... Whatever benefit there was, there were probably benefits from our kind of what you might call voluntary social distancing. So the kind of common sense things we all do, given our private situation during flu season, you know, um, but the, the imposed government lockdowns after the fact, they ended up, at least if you look at the evidence, being basically all pain and no gain. And so really all you've got is costs. And that's why you end up, that's why we end up talking about the price of panic, because it's the price over and above the price that is the cost of, of the virus itself. And that that's what, you know, that's why George Gilder and his endorsement said it's the greatest public policy disaster in history. I don't know if that's true, but it's definitely a public policy disaster, unfortunately. 
Now, one of the things that you do well in the book is you're not really pointing fingers at people. You're not trying to say, well, this guy or this person or this group is to blame. You do. You're pretty hard on the media for you know obvious yeah. reasons, and we'll, you know we'll get into that. But you're 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 not judging motives here. You're saying, look, these people yeah. at least initially had had good motivations, and you say something in chapter 13 about the lockdowns. You talk about eight states that never locked down. Most of these are more rural, mm-hmm. admittedly, but you got Iowa, right. Oklahoma, Nebraska, South Dakota, North Dakota, Arkansas, Utah, and Wyoming. And you compare their deaths per million to the states that had the harshest lockdowns, California, mm-hmm. Illinois, Michigan, New York, and New Jersey. What did you find? Well, it's exactly the opposite. I mean, they say correlation uh, isn't causation, and that's certainly true. But there's not even a correlation of lockdowns and lives saved. It's actually a reverse, it's reverse correlation. So basically the places that had the highest per capita deaths are the places in general that had the harshest lockdowns and the places with the lowest are the places that had, uh, you know, that had the, the either no lockdowns or, or very mild response. Now, we're not saying therefore lockdowns is what killed everyone in, you know, in, in Connecticut and New York and New Jersey. Mm-hmm. It's a complicated cause and effect. But the point is, that's why we say, look, let's compare all the states, not just a couple of outliers, to really test whether the lockdowns made a difference. And they just don't. And in fact, if anything, um, the states that had the the worst of it actually are the places that had uh, the most severe lockdowns. And that's actually generally true internationally. In fact, we're going to talk about what other countries did. And we're also going to talk about how you can create panic, because the book... The Price of Panic shows you how panic is created. And this is a perfect case study because it's all in the forefronts of our minds. It's happened over the past six or eight months. Jay Richards, my guest, will show you how you create panic and how we did create panic with this pandemic. I'm Frank Turek. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. We're back in two. Friends, can you help me with something? Can you go up to iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast and give us a five-star review? Why? It will help more people see this podcast and therefore then hear it. So if you could help us out there, I'd greatly appreciate it. If you're low on the FM dial looking for national public radio, go no further. We're actually going to tell you the truth here. That's our intent anyway. I can guarantee you this. You will not see this on NPR. Hear this on NPR. My guest is Dr. Jay Richards, by the way, is his Ph.D. from Princeton University and is the co-editor of The Stream. He is a professor at Catholic University of America. He's a Renaissance man. He does all things well. And he's written this new book along with William Briggs and Doug Axe called The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. And in chapter three of this book, Jay, you talk about how to create panic. You say step one is excessive noticing. What's that? Mm -hmm. Excessive noticing is this attempt to track daily deaths and hospitalizations. I mean, all of us were doing this in the spring or checking Worldometer or CDC website, trying to find out, okay, how many people uh, died today of COVID-19? How many people are hospitalized? How many cases are there? And the problem is, is that first of all, that's not even possible to do. As it turns out, we don't track flu deaths this way. We have to figure out flu deaths actually after the fact. It's a complicated statistical job, actually, for figuring that out. We're trying to track these every day. And so it it absolutely encourages panic. I mean, imagine if 
there was a ticker at the bottom of our screens that showed us every single time someone died of the flu or every, you know, there's people dying of the flu all the time. There's tens of thousands of people dying of it. We'd be constantly in a state of panic. And so just that very attempt to constantly be noticing this as opposed to, okay, look, you know, there ultimately there is many birth certificates as there are death certificates. We all have a limited lifespan. And so they're always, Tens, tens, hundreds of thousands of people every day dying of various causes. Each individual death is a tragedy um, and is a heartbreak to lots of people, but it's also a fact of life. And so unless we want to keep ourselves in a constant state of panic, we have to keep that in perspective. And unfortunately, by fixating on kind of individual instances every single day, we think that was that was actually part of the problem. And you write this in the book that sober reporting would have served the common good, but it would have driven far less traffic to news sites. They, they just want clickbait out there. And that's part of the problem with the media. The second step, you say, to create panic is to obsess over cases. Unpack that yes. for us. We're seeing that now, especially. And so remember at the beginning, of course, we were really worried about deaths and severe hospitalizations and ICU and things like that. We're now talking about this thing called cases. But in the spring, at least, a case was a person, let's say you get really sick and you have the symptoms with COVID-19, you go to the urgent care and then they test you and then you get tested positive. Then you become a, quote, case. And that, that makes sense. Well, all that changed sometime in the summer because we started running hundreds of thousands of tests on asymptomatic people. So we're now up here in October to over a million case uh, tests almost every day. Almost all these people that are getting it done are, you know, college students, people that are working at jobs that have to get tested every day. And when you do that, most of the people that tested are getting tested or actually asymptomatic. And so what we're really talking about is a positive test. We're not even talking about a case. But if you call that a case, what people picture is sick people, lots of people sick with this infection. And so that's what's so terrifying. And so if you'll notice what we've had for several months is a continual increase in the number of cases and a continual decrease in the number of deaths and hospitalizations. And that should be that's a good sign. That means, gosh, lots of people get this that don't get sick or die, but nobody quite realizes that that's what's happening. And so we fixate on cases. And the reason we hear about so many cases is simply because we do so much testing. It's an artifact of the testing that we're doing. Jay, you got to help us with this because I think this is a key point. And it's a key point of confusion as well. And that is, how do they count a death from COVID, because I remember Dr. Burks back in March, I think it was March 26. Mm -hmm. I don't know why that date sticks in my mind, but she said anybody that has COVID and dies, we're going to now assume was their death was caused by COVID. In other words, how are they reporting COVID deaths? Is it accurate? Is it is it careful? Is it does it inflate the deaths, deflate the deaths? What's 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 the right answer? It's, it's If you think of a COVID death as uniquely caused by the coronavirus, then it vastly inflates it. But of course, that's not how death certificates are. There's usually, okay, there's a cause of death, there's a complicating factors, there's contributing factors. And COVID deaths, it's not COVID that ends up killing people. What it is, is it's pneumonia or some kind of lung inflammation, which is exactly the same with the flu. It's usually not the flu. It's uh, it's pneumonia, a bacterial infection in your lungs or some response to it. And so that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing, it's, there's, it's very hard to disentangle dying of 
COVID-19 and dying from it or dying with it, right? And mm. so this is the, this is precisely the problem is that because it's a, it's a new virus, it's spreading out it throughout the population. Most of the people that have it are asymptomatic. If everybody's getting tested, well, people are still dying of various and sundry things. And so if everybody that comes to the hospital is tested, then by definition, all those people or some of them are going to have the infection that is they're going to have the virus either live or dead in their system. And so you end up vastly inflating uh, the number of deaths caused directly by COVID-19, again, by this testing regime. And I, you don't have to assume a nefarious plot. A lot of it is that if we were watching the way these things were counted in the spring and they kept changing. And so you'd have, okay, here we've got a standard for how they're going to count this. And then suddenly they changed the way uh, deaths are counted. I remember in April, they, there was a shift and all of a sudden you saw a spike right. in the deaths if you're doing the sort of daily tracking. And so we realized the data is just kind of a mess, at least in real time. And so we felt like in the book, we just had to say, okay, reported deaths, attributed deaths, things like that. Because the reality is like the CDC website actually is generally more reliable than some of these other tracking websites, but they're also, there's a lag. The CDC is, they, they're slow, but precisely because they want to get the numbers right. And so the CDC wasn't really the sexy thing to cite. It was Worldometer, one of these other real-time tracking sites. And the media, of course, is always going to go for the most inflated real-time number. And so again, that's that's unfortunately what we had. I think all these numbers will eventually, it'll all kind of wash out and we'll have a fairly accurate picture, but we'll be out of the social contagion at that point. And so the trick is, how do you deal with it when you're right in the middle of the social contagion? And unfortunately, it's October and we're, we're still in it. Yeah, and you write in the book, uh, you say, uh, healthcare workers sometimes counted people who died with corona-like symptoms as dying from the coronavirus, even if they hadn't been tested it's the old adage, you know, man on ladder falls off, hits his head, taken to the hospital, had a, had a sniffle, and he dies. Must have been COVID. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. No, and it sounds strange, but this was that was the weird thing. We we're not only counting people that tested positive, even if they had other things that was probably what killed them. But if people sort of had symptoms and weren't tested, they were often counted. In fact, there was a lot of that happening in Italy, and this is the other thing, is that countries were not counting these things the same way. You know, they had different mm. criteria. And so that you, it creates this data problem in which, okay, how, how do we actually compare country with country? It's, it really is just quite a mess. Now, you're in the book not saying that the coronavirus isn't dangerous. It is obviously to people that have comorbidities, but I think you mm -hmm. write that the people that die from this have on average 2.6 comorbidities, which might be what? Obesity, asthma, yep. diabetes. Di yeah. Exactly. Okay. All, the, all the kind of things you would expect. And that's why the deaths are often among the elderly, who will often, the older you get, the more of these comorbidities. You tend to get heart disease. You tend, you know, if you're overweight, you will uh, end up with type 2 diabetes. And those things are very strong contributing factors. That's why if you're over 70, uh, you're about a thousand times more likely to die of this than if you're under 20, if you're a young kid. There's just, you're much more likely if you're a young kid actually of dying of the flu uh, than of COVID-19. And so that so tells Jay, us that this is, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, so Jay, why are the schools closed in some states? 
It's insane. I mean, now you could say, well, it's maybe to protect elderly teachers or something uh-huh. like that. But if that was the issue, we would focus on that, right? We'd get substitute teachers. We'd have teachers working over Zoom. There's no reason why we should have children having to work from their computers at home rather than gathering together. It makes absolutely no sense. And, and, and most of the European countries figured this out months ago. I mean, all this kind of craziness with uh, elementary schools still being closed in lots of places around the United States. I mean, it is just genuinely crazy. It doesn't make any sense. Now, Jay, the CDC did admit, and I think it was Dr. Burks or somebody came out, I don't know, may have been two months ago, where they said that only 6% of counted COVID deaths were just purely COVID, no comorbidities, correct? That's right. And so what they weren't saying was that it's only in 6% was it a sort of contributor. It's just that once you rule out all the other kind of causes, essentially all the comorbidities and things like that that could very well have done it, you just end up with a residue of 6%. And so that that tells you that really COVID-19 or infections from COVID-19, it's overwhelmingly a contributing factor uh, to deaths and overwhelmingly among people that are near the end of their natural lives already. So in chapter three, you've got three steps to creating panic. We've already covered excessive noticing and also Mm -hmm. obsessing over cases. The third one, you'll have to explain, you say compare Kiwis to Tangelos, what's that? (laughs) Oh, well, we're sort of we've sort of discussed that it's it's confusing cases. Um, oh. It's it's comparing, for instance, uh, the deaths from Spanish flu in which you have, uh, you know, it's sort of indiscriminate killer of kids that are nine or 10 years old, uh, as opposed to what we now know COVID-19 is, is it's a contributor to death so that the average the age of death uh, in COVID-19 is not that much different than the average lifespan in the United States. And so that that is relevant. The point's not that the older you are, the less valuable you are. That's not our point. The point is that it's far more tragic if something kills you when you're five years old than when you're 90 years old and really sick and likely to die soon anyway. It's a, this is why public health rational public health officials think in terms of life years, because that's what you really want to know. Okay, is this the sort of thing that sort of contributes and and maybe it takes a month off of people's lives on average, or is it just kill kind of indiscriminately? Those are really different things from a public health perspective. Yeah, we might not agree with Bill Maher on much, but you quote him in the book claiming that the panic uh, that our media put on this and continues to put on this was panic porn. Mm-hmm. That's what he called it. <laughs> yes, and it's perfect. And that's what we've been calling it because it really is. I mean, and it doesn't necessarily have to be mad motives. The reality is that in media, especially social media, there is such a strong incentive to terrify us. Nobody's going to read a story, you know, 330 million Americans stayed alive today. I mean, that's just <laughs> boring, right? Nobody's going to retweet that. And so there's just this constant kind of race to see who can be the most sensationalist. Unfortunately, there's a feedback in which we both terrify each other and we get terrified in turn. And that's what I think we're experiencing. We got a lot more with Dr. Jay Richards. His brand new book written with two co-authors is called The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. When we come back, I want to ask Jay about the modeling that uh, they used. Remember, two million people would die and uh, it was really wrong. Uh, And we'll talk about it. We'll talk about the inputs that go into it right after the break. I'm Frank Turek. Don't go anywhere. We're back in two. If you find value in the content of this podcast, don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. 
Join our online community to have great conversations, grow in your knowledge of God, and become a better defender of the Christian faith. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where we have hundreds of videos and over 100,000 subscribers that are part of our online family. Find us by searching for Frank Turek or cross-examine in the search bar. You can find many more resources like articles, online courses, free downloadable materials, event calendars, and more at crossexamined.org. Ladies and gentlemen, this weekend I'll be with Michael Kona, Greg Kokel, Jay Warner Wallace, uh, and several others. Titus Kennedy, the archaeologist, out in Tucson, Arizona. It's called Insight 2020, three-day uh, apologetics program. In fact, Doug Axe will be there, one of the co-authors of the book, The Price of Panic, as well. And if you go to our website, uh, you'll see... Click on events. You'll see the calendar there. It's at uh, Calvary Chapel in Tucson. And I believe it is Friday, Saturday, Sunday. If you're listening to this Saturday, you've already missed some of it. But if you're if you're there for Saturday night or Saturday morning and and uh, Sunday night, I hope to see you there. Uh, we're doing a lot of apologetic topics and uh, it's going to be a good conference. Just go to our website, crossexamine.org, and you'll see it there. Back to my friend Jay Richards, his book, The Price of Panic. Uh, Jay, the models that mm -hmm. came out of London and out of the University of Washington were models that had some sort of crazy predictions to them. They all turned out to be wrong. What kind of input goes into a model? It's, it's, uh, that's the thing is you don't plug temperatures into a model or connect models to thermostats or things like that. You have to enter different things, so-called propositions, which is just basically claims. So uh, how infectious is a bug going to be? Um, you know, how deadly is it? So what's its infection fatality rate? Um, all these different, what do people do when they find out about it? There's like a thousand assumptions that you plug in. And then what a model really is, is it's a complex argument that a computer runs. And so it just essentially runs, given these assumptions, if, 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 then run it across time and then see what comes out at the other end. And so scientists or modelers will often act like they discovered something, but models only tell you what you told them to say effectively. Now, maybe there's some kind of counterintuitive things you can discover. That doesn't mean models are useless. It means that they're gonna only be useful and should only give us advice on what to do if we've already confirmed them, that is, if the stuff, the, the assumptions we plug in have already been confirmed against reality. That was the problem in, with, with COVID-19, is especially this, this now infamous model with the Imperial College London came out in March. It wasn't based on any good data. It assumed an infection fatality rate of 3.4%. That's where we got that number, 2.2 million American dead unless we massively locked everything down. Uh, that's what Dr. Fauci told President Trump. President Trump announced, he was asked by the press, okay, what, what went into your decision-making in, on April the 8th? He said, well, in, in March, two very smart people were in my office and they said, Mr. President, if you don't lock it down, there are gonna be 2.2 million Americans dead. And so he thought, well, given the choices, I, they, they, we really had to do that. That 2.2 million number though, it, it wasn't based on evidence, it was based on the predictions of this model, which as soon as the model was, was revealed, they actually held onto it for a month and cleaned it up. 
uh, one smart modeler said it was more like a kind of a buggy mess, like a bowl of angel, more like a bowl of angel hair pasta than a sophisticated computer program. It was a disaster. In fact, it would produce different outcomes every time you would run it. Uh, it but the problem is, is that uh, American public health officials and then the director general of the World Health Organization, they glommed onto this model. Rather than saying, ah, let's be skeptical, that would make, if this were right, uh, this thing would be worse than the Spanish flu and there's no evidence of that. They just sort of jumped on it. Uh, and that's what made this different than sort of other circumstances. And when you say, okay, well, these guys have this speculative model, but let's, you know, we're not gonna make major global policy decisions based on this one model. That's actually what happened in this case. That's why we talk about the tyranny of experts. The problem is in expertise. It's when a few people that are just really well placed get one idea in their heads and they have the ability to advise presidents and prime ministers and to shut down the world, which is what happened. Well, Jay, the truth of the matter is, it seems to me, there are too many variables and too many unknowns to even trust these models, which is another way of saying that a point you made in the earlier book, Money, Greed, and God, it's another way of saying that there's no one person that has all the information and can direct a top-down model of an economy or a top-down model of a lockdown because you just don't have the information. No, that's right. I mean, there's like, we're really good at modeling things like orbits of planets that follow <laughs> the laws of physics. We're right. really good at that, right? That's not how humans are, though. As you said, you know, the second something happens, people adjust what they're doing. And so this is why you do have principles in economics of supply and demand and incentives matter and things like that. But this attempt to be able to predict exactly what people are going to do, how many people are going to be around, it's all extremely artificial. And so what you're, you're, you're taking something that's just exquisitely complex and trying to sort of model it with Lego blocks or something like that. Now, this would be okay if you're saying, well, this is such a complex issue, let's just see what we can do. But that's not what happened in this case. Everyone was treating these numbers, not as if they're just sort of conjectures, uh, but as if, okay, well, that's the best evidence we have. And so, I mean, President Trump, he didn't make up that number. That's the exact number that came from Dr. Fauci that came in turn from the Imperial College London model. And so um, this is what terrified us. This is why we wrote the book, because we, we knew enough about modeling and its limitations to realize, yikes, I can't believe we're making international decisions based upon something this tenuous. Now, you make this point, too, which uh, I hadn't thought of, but it's true. You say that the difference between predicted deaths and actual deaths is now interpreted as saved lives. Like yes. we've saved nearly a 40, 40 million worldwide. And Trump will go around saying, well, if I hadn't locked the yeah. place down, we would have lost two million. I've saved 1.8 million lives. Now, based yeah. on the information he had, that's true, but it's not yes. really true, is it? It's not. And I really wish, you know, the president isn't taking my advice, but I really wish he would say, well, you know, because he's now being attacked for killing 200,000 people. He could say, well, well, I was told, right, that we would kill 2.2 million. So right. on your own terms, I saved 2 million people. But the reality is, is that no, we didn't. That's what we all want to believe that we want to believe that all this pain of the lockdowns is responsible for saving 2 million people. But the only reason we ever had to believe that 2.2 million figure was the model. And the model assumed an infection fatality rate of 3.4%, which is orders of magnitude off. We know it's not anything like that. It's between probably 0.13 and 
0.26%. So, so much, much, much smaller. And so it's just not true that we saved 2 million people with this. In fact, I think if we had just done uh, more or less what we did um, and not locked down and just done voluntary stuff, we suspect that it would probably have ended up as, as it has ended up now. It's just that we would not have devastated our economy as much as we did. We're talking to Dr. Jay Richards, and the new book is called The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. You also write this, Jay. You say, if you forget everything else about models, remember this. You can't get out of a model what you didn't put in. This goes for simple models and complicated ones. Models only say what we tell them to say. That's the, that's the fundamental lesson to remember, because models, unfortunately, they've taken on this sort of almost superhuman quality. So people are imagining all oh, the, the machine learning and artificial intelligence, which is really just complex statistical algorithms, uh, but artificial intelligence sounds better. And so we sort of imagine that it's, it constitutes this new type of evidence, but it's not. It's something that we're able to do because we have really fast, really strong computers. But models are ultimately arguments, and the, the validity of the arguments is ultimately going to be based on the truth of the premises that are put into them, which have to be tested against the evidence. So you run a model. What you want to do is then test it and see, okay, does it, does it predict what happened in the past? And then let's test it and see if it predicts what's happening. And then once it does, then you, that's how you validate a model. But we were running models and making decisions on, or decisions based on models that had not been validated in any way. And then we're, we're claiming victory after the bad model <laughs> says we, w we would have lost two million. We've only lost 200,000. So look, we're. Yeah, we're we, great. And, we're no, great. We've done a lot yeah. better. Yeah, and I can understand the kind of political necessity of right. making that sort of argument. But I, the truth of the matter is, no, we need to assess and look clearly at what actually happened because I'm I'm forgiving of both the officials and the politicians who are trying to do things right at the beginning as long as they learn their lesson and they uh, update their beliefs based upon new information. And that's the problem is we're in October and a lot of folks have not managed to update their views on this since March. It's like we haven't learned anything. What is going on right now in the media, Jay? Uh, with regard to, I, I see headlines all the time, particularly from the New York Times. As Cal Thomas said, every day I read the New York Times and the Bible just to see what both sides are doing. But <laughs> anyway, you know, they're, they're pushing the panic up again as coronavirus cases peaking. What, is the, what does all this mean? Well, what it means is that, honestly, in the United States, I think part of it is that they hate Donald Trump. Um, well, we know and, that. Okay. Yeah. And so there is that. It's not, of course, all of this is not just Donald Trump because it's an international phenomenon, but a lot of what the American media are doing uh, are, is essentially that. Um, the problem is, is that they'd still have about half the population terrified. Initially, I thought, well, after the election, maybe they'll stop doing this. But the reality is that at least the people that get all their information from CNN are genuinely terrified. I know that because they walk around my neighborhood scowling at me if I don't have a mask on in the middle of the noonday sun. And so they really are scared. And so I don't know how you kind of unwind that. But I honestly think for, for the media, a lot of it is that. They've decided they want to frame this, this sort of election as a referendum between the science on one side and mean orange man 
uh, bad man on the, on the other side. And so they're sort of locked into that. And then there's just the natural incentive uh, to terrify people and to sensationalize. And of course, lots of cases are happening. You're getting a lot of them, quote cases, which are really positive tests, because we're doing a lot of positive testing, a lot of testing. And we predicted this. We were careful to predict this online in the spring. Okay, in the fall, they're going to be talking about testing and cases. So just watch out for it. And they're doing exactly that, unfortunately. So is the reality such that we're getting more cases because we're doing more testing, but the death rate is coming down? Is that the reality no, that's right, right now? That, that, that's the reality, the, the total number of people dying. And then, of course, the, the, the ratio of people testing positive to the number of people dying is, you know, is expanding dramatically. But that's because we're, you know, we're testing far more people. But we now we do know that and I'll just give you the World Health Organization's most recent estimate. No, nobody can uh, claim them. You know, that they're uh, with they're, us. They're, on they're this. not Orange Man fans. No, they're that. not. Yeah, they're not Orange Man. They said, look. Okay, Okay, it looks like the infection fatality rate is more like 0.13%, which is actually slightly below the estimate that we came up with based on the data we only had in June. And so, yeah, I mean, we're talking much, much, much smaller than what they themselves had originally said. And so what this means is that, look, this response, even if the lockdown response had made sense for a certain type of pandemic, it wouldn't have made sense in this case. Now, now looking at the evidence, we actually don't think general population lockdowns make any sense. You just don't want to lock everyone down. You want to do what we've always done in these cases, which is quarantine the sick. Well, that's what we're going to talk about, because you have in the book, The Price of Panic, you have some results from Japan, Sweden and Taiwan who didn't lock down like we did. What happened to them? And uh, we're also going to ask a couple other important questions about this. Where do we go from here? What have been the other costs other than the economy that... Uh, that this pandemic and our response is brought on. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turk. We're back in two minutes. Friends, Frank Turek here. I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist is a listener-supported radio program and podcast. So if you like what you hear here, would you consider donating to crossexamined.org? 100% of your donations go to ministry. 0% to buildings. We're completely virtual. So if you can help us out, we greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much. The price of panic, how the tyranny of experts turned a pandemic into a catastrophe. My guest is the co-author of that book, Dr. Jay Richards. And uh, Jay, we were just talking about uh, some aspects of uh, the lockdown. One big aspect, as you know, is this use of masks. What does the data mm -hmm. show about masks? And if masks really do work, why are we locked down? Why aren't we just wearing masks <laughs> everywhere and getting back to our lives? Well, the uh, the assumption between that the people that say we need to wear masks and lockdown is that each increment helps a little bit. So they're not mm -hmm. the, none of them are perfect. So maybe the mask helps a little bit and washing our hands. And so that's that's at least the logic. We spent a bunch of time looking. There's actually a lot of studies going back a long time trying to figure out the efficacy of masks. Um, the simplest thing to say is it's really complicated. Obviously, um, mechanistically it makes sense. If you wear an N95 mask, you're going to filter out. 95% of the kind of tiny particles that might otherwise come in, including aerosol particles, which we think are actually contribute up maybe the lion's share of, of transmissions of the coronavirus. The problem is nobody's really doing that. And so this is why, if you remember the CDC and World Health Organization early on, they, first of all, they were terrible messaging, but they basically said, 
it doesn't do you any good to wear masks and don't buy the masks because the healthcare workers need them. And so that was like a kind of a puzzler, you know, it's like, well, if they need them, why does it, how does it help them? Well, what they should have said is, look, there's so many contingencies with masks that if you don't wear them exactly right and do them the way that you're supposed to, they one aren't going to probably make any difference and might in some cases actually make things worse. That's what they should have said, but they were bungled that. And so everybody was suspicious at the beginning, right? Um, about how this goes. The truth of the matter is there's no evidence that wearing a cloth over your face is going to cut down, especially on aerosol transmission. Aerosol transmission, just think of it as smoke that passes through and that's going to pass right through fabric. Well, surgical masks, they are the design basically to prevent you from spitting. So, you know, a surgeon wears it not to prevent aerosol transmission of viruses, but so he doesn't frankly sneeze right into an open wound or something like that. So those, those little masks we wear, the surgical masks, those are designed to protect the environment from the wearer rather than the wearer from the environment. Mm. N95 masks, if they're properly fitted and clean and tightly fitted to your face, probably, at least mechanistically, we don't have a lot of data on it in terms of controlled studies, probably reduces the amount of stuff coming in. Uh, but that all, notice all those contingencies. If you touch the surface of your mask, for instance, you have a mask, you're walking around in infected air for an hour, the most the most uh, dangerous surface in that room is the outside of your mask because you've been filtering the air with it for an hour. And so if you fiddle with it, uh, all bats are off. And so that's why there's actually kind of a trade-off in which you could actually make it worse. And so the long and the short of it is, Frank, is that what we're actually doing, the t ways we're wearing these things, is mostly hygiene theater that's not really, unfortunately, helping anyone. And this is why, yeah, it totally makes sense in a really high-risk environment you're a healthcare worker that you would wear it, but you're going to do it properly. And then it makes a difference that really right now, I mean, it's sort of like the security theater that we all participate in when we, when we go to the airport, it's like, well, it may be a comfort to some people, but it's probably not making a lot of difference. Mm. Let's also talk, Jay, if we could, uh, we haven't gotten into this yet, but your book has a full chapter on it. The real human cost of the lockdown. Uh, it, you know, we, as you, as you point out, there's trade-offs to doing everything. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, it's not lives for money. It's lives for lives, regardless of what you do, what kind of lockdown you have, no lockdown, moderate lockdown, complete lockdown. It's always going to be a trade off of lives for lives. So can you give us some of the points you discovered in researching this book? Probably the most tragic global cost to the lockdowns is the disruption in the international food supply. Because in the United States, we had, yeah, we ran out of toilet paper and, you know, hand wash and things like that. But people that are at the very bottom rung of the economic ladder, right at the edge of absolute poverty, um, anything that changes them is going to constitutes a major shock to their, their lives and their well-being. The UN Food Program uh, has actually estimated that as many as 300,000 people per day could die in the latter part of 2020, just as a result of uh, this disruption. Now, I think that's probably an overestimate, but let's say it's 30,000 extra deaths of starvation per day. Very quickly, you get as many people starving to death globally as you got attributed to the uh, COVID-19. But let's just focus domestically. We estimate it costs the economy about a trillion dollars a month, uh, the lockdowns. And those are that's not just dollars, of course. They represent people's well-beings and lives and school and food and all those things. 
41 million new jobless claims as a result of the lockdowns by uh, late May. Um, one recent study estimates there will be about 75,000 excess deaths of despair. So that's deaths from suicide and drug and alcohol uh, overdoses. Almost all, those are all deaths that are really the result of the lockdowns themselves. And then, of course, we all heard these stories about delays in treatment and diagnosis of other illnesses. We cleaned out the hospital wards, uh, canceled all so-called elective procedures, um, and a Medscape study in June actually thinks there were about 80,000 missed cancer diagnoses just in the three months, the main three months of the lockdowns. That's just cancer. Sorry, Jay, we just lost you, but we got you back. You were just talking about the deaths from cancer. What else? Yeah, I mean, cancer, that's just by itself tens of thousands of deaths, and you get heart disease and all the other things that for which people are treated uh, with elective procedures. Very quickly, you've got as many people dying just from missed uh, health cares and from screening as actually died from COVID-19 itself. I mean, that's the very definition of bad public policy when the response kills as many or more people as the thing that you're trying to prevent. Jay, what should what lessons should we take from this now as we move forward? What I mean, suppose you were the president, suppose you were a benevolent mm -hmm. dictator. How would you deal with uh, the coronavirus going forward or future pandemics? Well, I think we need to do more or less what we were doing before, which is focus protection. It's the Great Barrington Declaration. Scientists have called for this. This is effectively focus on the people that we know that are most at risk, the elderly, especially elderly that are in nursing homes. That's where a lot of deaths in the Northeast happen. Um, use everything at our disposal, all the tools and medicines at our disposal that we've learned over the last seven months to treat the sick, and then let people otherwise live their lives and make decisions based upon their local situation. That's actually what you want to have happen. You want to let people, especially that are in school or in the economy, uh, who are at low risk to continue doing what they're doing, many of them will maybe catch uh, the virus, but they're going to be either very you know, mildly sick or completely asymptomatic. They build up immunity while you protect and focus all of your attention on the sick. That's what I think we ought to be doing. I think that's what President Trump's calling for now. Uh, and then going forward, I think that we need to reform the public health officialdom so that two or three smart people don't have the ability to just basically, um, you know, blindside the president of the United States. The president needs access to the full diversity of scientific opinion on this subject. And that's unfortunately not what he had back in March. Well, Jay, we don't have time to get into you. I know you have to go to another interview, but you talk about Taiwan, Sweden and Japan. They did not lock down fully and they're just doing fine. So I urge people to get the book. The book is called The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. Jay Richards, one of the co-authors, has been my guest today. Jay, it's always great to have you on. Tell people where they can learn more about you. Absolutely. You can check me out at the stream at stream.org um, or at discover, the Discovery Institute, discovery.org. Um, and yeah, you, you get the book in each place that books are sold. Great stuff, Jay. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thanks, Ryan. All right. That's the great Jay Richards. Jay Wesley Richards, as I say, graduate of Princeton University, has a number of degrees. He is a renaissance man. The guy's good at everything. Uh, it's always great to have Jay on. The book is well worth the read, uh, and it will give you a new perspective. It goes to show uh, or goes to give us an example of what I've been saying, that science doesn't say anything scientists do. This is why we're getting so many different opinions on coronavirus is because 
the data out there needs to be gathered and the data out there needs to be interpreted. And science does not do that. Scientists do that. And they may have good data or bad data. They may have good assumptions or bad assumptions. And that can obviously impact the recommendations they give to our political leaders. So the book is well worth the read. Again, he doesn't really blame anybody because he doesn't ascribe nefarious motives to anyone other than the media, which really deserve it uh, because they are creating panic when there shouldn't be panic. And people were trying to do what they thought was right. But now that we've been through this, this should never happen again. Uh, and uh, this book will help you navigate that in the future. So get it. It's called The Price of Panic. The last couple of things I did mention that I'm going to be in Tucson this weekend. Then out on November 5th, which is a Thursday night, I'll be at Hillview Heights Church in Bowling Green, Kentucky, that's uh, affiliated with the university right there. We are doing it at the church because the university won't let us have it have it there, but it's right next to the university. It's open to everyone. It's going to be, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Starts at 7 p.m. That's about an hour north of Nashville. So if you're anywhere in that area, uh, love to see you on Thursday night, November 5th. Uh, and then I'll be at Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills, Lord willing, on Sunday, November 15th, doing all three services there. So go to our website, crossexamine.org, click on events, and you'll see Frank Turek calendar. Uh, and don't forget all the online courses we have as well. We've got, we're adding courses all the time. We've got a couple from Sean McDowell now. We've got Gary Habermas. We've got Craig Blomberg. We've got Dan Wallace, myself, Jay Warner Wallace, uh, Bobby Conway, uh, Michael Patton. All these courses are up on our website. Just click on crossexamine.org, click on online courses. You'll see them there. And uh, you can take a, a self-paced course where you can learn any of this stuff at your own pace. Or uh, when we're running a live course, you can take the premium version where we do these live Zoom sessions where we can answer your questions and interact with you live. All right. So it's always great to be with you, friends. On I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. If you would put a five-star review up on iTunes. This will help more people see this podcast and obviously then hear it. And uh, it'll help therefore move it up the charts so more people will benefit from it. I hope you do benefit from it. And uh, by the way, if you want to send me an email with a question or a comment, it's hello at crossexamine.org. Hello at crossexamine.org. I, I, I can't get to all the questions, but I promise to get to some of them anyway. So please email me there. I'm Frank Turek. Great being with you. See you next week, Lord willing. God bless. If you benefit from this podcast, help others find it. Just go to iTunes or any other podcast service you might be using to listen and leave us a five-star rating on the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast with Dr. Frank Turek. It will take you less than five seconds. You can also help a lot by leaving us a positive review for others to see. This podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and many other audio content delivery apps. Thank you and God bless.